You're listening to Monday Science Podcast, the show that brings you the latest in science, technology and health with your host, me, Dr. Bahija Rami Abraham. happy monday welcome back to monday science we are now in september still in 2020 but we're now in september now please don't forget to follow us on instagram at monday science as well as on twitter at monday science underscore you can submit your questions via our instagram as well as via email monday science 2020 at gmail.com or on our website where you can also submit your questions as a voice note and the website details are mondayscience.wixsite.com forward slash podcast So for the month of September, uh, September is Dementia Awareness Month, and I believe on the 21st of September is World Alzheimer's Day. And so for the month of September, I've curated a series, a dementia series for Monday Science. And this is because dementia is um, a condition, it's very personal to me, it's touched uh, my family. And I wanted to use Monday Science as a platform, as well as obviously, uh, you know, September being Dementia Awareness Month. But I wanted to curate this series Um, in the hope to raise awareness of dementia, the impact that COVID-19 has had for people living with dementia, as well as their families um, who are supporting them and and looking after them, as well as in general, the experiences of people living with dementia as well and and their families, and also take the opportunity to highlight the challenges faced by people outside of the UK leaning with dementia. We starts with a interview, so that's in today's episode, an interview with Kate Swaffer, who is a humanitarian chair, CEO and co-founder of Dementia Alliance International. And as part of the Dementia series, Monday Science is fundraising for Dementia Alliance International during the month of September, hoping to raise £500. So please donate. And this is towards Dementia Alliance International's activities. And you can support our in, our fundraising initiative uh, via our Just Giving page. So that's justgiving.com forward slash fundraising forward slash Monday hyphen science. But you can also go on to our website, mondayscience.wixsite.com forward slash podcast, which has got all the details there. Enjoy. To start things off, if you could let our listeners know a little bit about yourself. Okay, thank you. Um, it's fantastic to be here with you and what, what a wonderful initiative. Um, so thank a little you. bit about me. I live in Adelaide, Australia. I used to visit England a lot, but there's no visiting going on at the moment. Uh, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a retired nurse, uh, having worked in aged and dementia care and then working in operating theatres for a long time. Um, I, After that, I worked uh, actually as a chef for about 10 years, um, complete change of hats, my father said. Um, I then worked as a regional manager and educator in a healthcare company um, uh, and in the last 15 years I've completed a number of tertiary degrees. Uh, I work as a part-time researcher, as an assistant investigator on a number of projects um, and I write books, I do speaking and regular blogging and I work more than full-time um, in an unpaid role for Dementia Alliance International, which was set up by eight people with dementia uh, from three different countries in 2014. Amazing. My favourite line so far of what you said was, you work more than full-time. <laughs> what does that mean, more than full-time? <laughs> so, yeah, that's an amazing overview in your career. I like the varied aspects of uh, your career. I think too often we hear from people that might have not had 
such diverse career backgrounds. They just have maybe one thing that they've done. And I think it's nice to be encouraged or, or be inspired, sorry, by people such as yourself doing a variety of things. Before we get further into you and your experiences, and I definitely want to talk about the books, I'd like to start off with definitions because, for example, we hear the word dementia mentioned in various different contexts. And also we hear the um, the term Alzheimer's disease. So if we could just start off our discussion with, um, if you could give an overview or an explanation of what is dementia. Sure. Um, I forgot to say, just going backwards one moment, I'm also a mother of two amazing adult sons and uh, have a husband. I'm married. Uh, oh, I should, lovely. I shouldn't forget my family. Um, <laughs> But back to dementia, so clinically uh, dementia is a gradual deterioration of functioning um, abilities such as thinking, uh, concentration, um, memory recall, uh, sometimes judgment, person's ability to perform everyday tasks uh, and like for a younger person, including um, in their working life, um, technically it's a terminal illness but so is being born. Um, whilst dementia is most commonly seen in older persons, it's not a normal part of the ageing process. Um, Alzheimer's disease uh, and other dementias are currently not just incurable, but uh, generally untreatable. There are no available pharmacological treatments for Alzheimer's disease or any other type of dementia as yet, uh, and there's no like no disease-modifying drugs like you would have for, say, uh, diabetes. There are some drug drugs available that may alleviate some of the symptoms, but they're not, not a cure or a disease-modifying drug. Um, so to be diagnosed with dementia, a person is declining in uh, at least two of those functions that I mentioned earlier. To my knowledge, and I'm not a doctor and I'm a retired nurse, so and certainly I didn't do diagnosing as a nurse, um, the formal criteria, irrespective of type, requires that a person's diagnosed with probable or possible dementia. There are changes in memory and thinking known as cognition or in behaviour which interfere with someone's ability um, to perform their usual activities. Um, and the changes are declines in their usual abilities, not things they've always had trouble with. Yeah, so like I was very, very good at maths and now I can't mm. even calculate it, for example. So, uh, and, you know, I, th I think it's difficult if someone's been very high functioning. Um, it's often uh, um, a friend of mine's grandfather had Alzheimer's disease and he'd been a high court judge in Australia. And uh, I mean, I'm pretty sure he probably would have been diagnosed 15 years before he was diagnosed, but he was very, uh, you know, high achiever um, and he was able to compensate for a very long time. Um, and I think the other thing that's important when you talk about dementia is there's a whole range of other conditions that can cause changes in our cognitive abilities but aren't dementia and uh, many of them treatable about a hundred other conditions I think um, so things such as delirium uh, many older people um, I've got you know I've been reported by many people that older family members have been sent to hospital with what turned out to be delirium but they were diagnosed misdiagnosed with dementia and many times I've ended up in nursing homes and um, other conditions. Mental illness can cause cognitive changes. Lyme's disease can cause cognitive changes. So there's a 
whole range of other uh, medical conditions that really do need to be ruled out first and generally are very treatable. So even, uh, you know, it's not a normal part of ageing and even at the age of 85, um, from what I've read, less than 50% of people are likely to have it. And just um, touch by what you said, that it's not a normal part of ageing, because if just from my own, well, I don't want to say necessarily experience, but just when I've read things or even just kind of general conversations, people tend to say, oh, dementia, it is part of normal ageing. It's just maybe more advanced. And and for you, to, you know, to highlight that it's actually not a part of normal ageing. I think there's perhaps um, that stigma that, memory loss is part of well so loss of cognitive function is part of normal aging and then they blanket that term sorry as dementia am that, i sort of yeah that makes sense and and that is very common and um even though it does the risk of dementia increases with aging um it's not necessarily a, a normal part of aging um and I, i'm trying to remember from my psychology degree a, a term something like benign senescent memory loss I think it's called um, and that is like normal memory changes as we age just like our eyesight ages and our skin gets you know I'm getting old so my skin's looking old now um, so that's a normal part of aging but dementia is not necessarily a normal part of aging. You'd mentioned um, Alzheimer's and as I mentioned earlier there's it, the two dementia and Alzheimer's you tend to hear them used interchangeably just in, in conversation so I was just wondering if you could explain the difference between the two and also why do we hear those two uh, uh, terms used inter- interchangeably often? I guess it's a bit complicated um, so dementia is in itself is not a disease. Um, uh, There are, I don't know, over 100 types or causes of dementia and Alzheimer's is one type and even then there are different types of Alzheimer's disease. And I, I mean, in a really simplistic way, if we liken the word dementia to car or fruit, um, if you asked me to go shopping for you for some fruit, I would ask you what type of fruit. You would say, let's just say apples. I would probably then say, what type of apples would you like? So, you know, there are different types of apples, different types of oranges, um, as there are many different types um, of uh, dementias and then subcategories of dementia. So there's a few different types. And, and, and I don't know all of the types, but... Um, you know, the most common form of dementia is Alzheimer's disease. And depending on who you listen to or what you read, somewhere between 50 and 70% of all dementias are Alzheimer's. And then I think the second highest uh, cause of dementia is vascular dementia. Um, and sometimes people who've had strokes are inclined to get that. A friend of mine who had younger onset dementia and died in a nursing home here in Australia when he was uh, 57, he ended up with vascular dementia and, and his doctor thought it was because he'd had brain tumours, you know, 30 years before. Um, and then there is Lewy body dementia. My father-in-law had Lewy body dementia and his was associated with uh, Parkinson's disease as well. Um, uh, and then there's a, a range of dementias called frontotemporal dementias, and there's a few different types in that kind of category. So it's sort of like, you know, there's a Mercedes-Benz car, but there's all different types of Mercedes. I think one of the challenges with is it Alzheimer's or is it dementia? And um, 
if you go to conferences about dementia, you'll often hear presenters say Alzheimer's or dementia. Or mm. if you listen to, um, really, it's people who probably should know better, but it keeps the myth alive that they're two separate diseases. And, you mm. know, I've had people say to me, I'm so glad that I've got Alzheimer's and I haven't got dementia. Or conversely, yeah. they'll say, I'm so glad I've got dementia and not Alzheimer's. Mm. So, you know, I think it's really important for the general public to actually understand that Alzheimer's is just one of many types of dementias. Even when I was thinking about putting together this uh, de- the, the dementia series and World Alzheimer's Day is 21st of September. So I, I was like, oh, World Alzheimer's Day. And that's when I was like, okay, World Alzheimer's Day. And then I saw some other uh, things in uh, on the internet that said, oh, September is Dementia Awareness Month. And I would look on different resources, um, online resources, and see that some people are saying it's Dementia Awareness, it's Alzheimer's Day. It's this, and and, it, and it, I, I myself, you know, got very confused. And um, yeah, that clarity is really important. I think a potential topic for increased advocacy and awareness, because I'm not sure if people really get that they, you know, really understand that relationship between dementia and Alzheimer's, as you've explained. I think that's right. In Australia, when I, I, as we've discussed before, I've been diagnosed with younger onset dementia and I became a very active advocate with what was known as Alzheimer's Australia. And so that's the national um, body here for, uh, that supports families uh, and people with dementia. Um, and so you've got the Alzheimer's Society UK, there's Alzheimer's America, and there's mm-hmm. Alzheimer's organisations all over the world. But we were finding, and, and the voices of people with dementia through DAI were, were getting quite loud, and we were having people say, oh, well, we, so we can't get support from Alzheimer's Australia because we haven't got Alzheimer's. We've got a different type of dementia. Mm. And we advocated, uh, and Alzheimer's Australia uh, in 2017 changed their name to Dementia Australia to make sure that it right. was absolutely inclusive to everyone. Yeah. But, of course, yeah. for an organisation that is a not-for-profit organisation, to do a whole rebranding is incredibly expensive. Um, yes. Even Alzheimer's Disease International talked about changing their name um, so that they'd move away from Alzheimer's to dementia. But to do that, it's a very expensive experience. And then because, you know, lots of organisations like Alzheimer's Society UK and ADI, they're so well known, it would take another 10 years for people to know who they are again. So, you know, it's been complicated, but certainly in Australia, we're really pleased that it's called Dementia Mm. because that's completely inclusive of every type of dementia and, and does help break down that lack of understanding about it. Yeah. And, and yeah, I think that's something that would be good to sort of, and as you said, you know, obviously the cost implications of that is tricky, but um, it would help, it would help a lot. Uh, I think it would help a lot of people to, even just general public, whether people are wondering if their relatives might have dementia, what that means. Um, I think it, it may help people to recognise things a bit more if they just knew that this is the umbrella term and their subsections and subtypes. Um, it's very interesting. So it just, <laughs> I think we're maybe, I don't know if we're deviating or not because this is all good content, but um, I'm finding in my journey with the podcast, um, 
it, it the so for example we did a podcast around health inequalities for uh, cancer patients in the LGBTQ plus community and one of the things that was highlighted was that the lack of data is because not there are many other issues but lack of data of um, the effect of you know cancer screening or cancers in the LGBTQ plus community yes. is also to do with um, just maybe not having information directly recorded on a health form you know so maybe not always having to record if you're well you might have to say if you're heterosexual or homosexual but then what what are the subtypes <laughs> you know yes. and and it's it's interesting just even as we've just spoken just now that there is also still that challenge and it it goes back to terminology definitions awareness understanding and making sure that we are careful how we communicate things you know that sort of communication yeah. of things is is i find that just a very fascinating because when you break it's only through these sorts of conversations that you really maybe give people insight as to the fundamental some of the fundamental challenges in the other things that come out of things and and i, I think you know globally we've got more than 50 million people living with dementia and a new diagnosis somewhere in the world every 3.2 seconds, I think the WHO says. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think that we are now, maybe in the last two decades, we're now with dementia where we were in the 70s when I started nursing, um, which gives away my age a little bit, um, <laughs> with cancer and HIV in terms of the fear and stigma, but also, you know, I can remember that cancer patients in hospitals we they were like hidden in the back wards of the hospital families didn't visit they were terrified of catching aids uh the stigma we didn't know that the all of the different types of cancer so so i think that we're kind of coming out of where we were with cancer um there was even a conversation um amongst uh, people with cancer and healthcare professionals should we get rid of the c word there was so much stigma with wow. And, you know, the last five years we've been having conversations, should we get rid of the D word, meaning dementia? Mm. But, you know, mm. most people with dementia would say it's not the word that's the problem, it's the way you treat us that's the problem. Yes. It's stigma. Yes. You know, and, yes. And, and it's been so medicalised, dementia, and I think we've really got to move away from the medical view um, you know, one of the founders of DAI um, who lives in USA, and he has a rare younger onset dementia. He's been diagnosed about 12 years now, and he's, he's got the same type that his father had. It's some sort of familial Alzheimer's disease. And he says, we're just changing in ways the rest of you aren't. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, our power, Dr. Al Power, um, he sort of talks about um, his he's a... A clinician as well as a psychiatrist as well as a um, an advocate for people with dementia and he he says that his patients with dementia he sees them as experiencing in a shift experiencing a shift in the way they view the world I mean I personally just see it as a chronic progressive condition that although it's really devastating when you're first diagnosed it is a condition that causes acquired cognitive and since some sensory disabilities, um, the World Health Organization states that dementia is one of the major causes of disability and dependence in older persons. 
So that's for me why I've been campaigning so much about seeing dementia as a disability, which, you know, then we start thinking about rights and access to the CRPD mm. like anybody else with an acquired disability. That's what we really need that to change. I'm to young onset dementia. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> We've been around a bit. Um, oh, but it's been brilliant. It's been worth it. It's been it's important. Thing. Yeah. Um, so dementia uh, for people under the age, so people are over the age of 65, it's more commonly being called older onset dementia, although you'd be more likely to say you've got Alzheimer's disease or you've got vascular dementia. Um, but when symptoms occur, so not, ne to my knowledge, not necessarily diagnosis, but when you have uh, symptoms occurring under the age of 65, um, that used to be referred to as early onset dementia, but more often now it's referred to as younger onset dementia. In Australia, we call it younger onset dementia um, because, uh, you know, it, everybody, no matter what age they get dementia, goes through the early stages of it. Um, so it's kind of it makes it an easy way of differentiating um, for when younger people get it. Uh, and like DAI, we have members who, who were diagnosed with uh, one 18-year-old from Kenya who had a very rare familial Alzheimer's-type dementia. So young people get dementia as well, but something like only 7 to 10% of the whole cohort of people with dementia are under the age of 65. Um, but there's certainly a huge lack of understanding. Uh, you know, lots of people don't know younger people get dementia. Um, you know, for heaven's sake, I worked as a nurse in a dementia ward and I didn't know that younger people got dementia because I only cared for people with late stage and very advanced um, dementias. Um, there's, you know, an incredible lack of support for those of us who, who are younger. Usually we've got, if we're not children ourselves, and some people are children when they're diagnosed, but generally, you know, more likely in their 30s and 40s and 50s, people with younger onset dementia you know, that's kind of the prime of our life. We've got mortgages, mm -hmm. kids at school. We've got um, sometimes older parents who need support. Um, and there's no support for us, but there's even less support for our children. And, you know, I found that my parents, um, my father, who passed away a year ago, he couldn't really say the word dementia even. There was so much stigma for him. And my mother talked about the stigma um, which I, I'd never thought about her experiencing stigma of my dementia, but I, I'd had brain surgery about three years before my diagnosis of dementia. And um, she, they live in a, a farming community about six hour drive from where I am. And when I was having brain surgery in the city, she was having meal drops and her friends were dropping in every day. How was, you know, how's Kate getting on and so on. But when I got dementia and she, told her friends I had dementia, she talked about this wall of silence. And interestingly, my kids said the same thing. So when mum was having brain surgery, the school community, and they were in, still in high school for both, when I was diagnosed with both things, um, the school community was absolutely amazingly proactively supportive without me having to ask. And I didn't know that my kids hadn't received support from school until my younger son presented at a workshop uh, on young onset dementia and you know he made me cry for a week afterwards he said that you know 
he used the same term that my mother used. He said, when we told the school mum had dementia, every time I'd walk into a room, it was quiet. There was like this wall of silence. So I think that the kids of people with young onset and the older parents have absolutely been, until very recently, that's changed a bit for children, but I think they've been the forgotten people, even though most people with young onset would feel like we're forgotten and we don't have services, or if we do have services, you know, until recently in Australia, you had to access old age services. And, you know, they're not necessarily appropriate for people with young onset dementia. At least now in Australia, people under 65 with dementia are able to access the National Disability um, Scheme. So we have, uh, you know, we can access a disability support package uh, instead of aged care. So, but, you know, in reverse, um, our disability um, package discriminates against older people with dementia and dementia is the leading cause of disability in older persons. It kind of is, it doesn't win everywhere you go. So it's really complicated, I think. Yeah, because that the wall of silence can also, because any anybody who is caring, so I think that thing of caring for somebody with dementia, being having uh, living with dementia, that wall of silence can actually prevent people talking about it in general, right? Because I'm guessing when you are faced with sort of expressing this is what I'm going through I need support or just even you may not even necessarily be asking for support you're just saying this is what I'm going through if it's received with silence then is that it's almost like a a um indirect uh indirect feedback well it's quite direct actually feedback saying don't talk about it anymore for older people it's the stigma usually and that wall of science that they of silence that they anticipate getting from their family and friends and it's pretty common that they do that's why they don't want to get a diagnosis whereas usually younger people it doesn't stop us getting a diagnosis because I can tell you now we didn't think we'd get dementia you know nobody expects to get young onset dementia and and, and it's it's becoming more commonly known now but it's still uh, most people don't think young people get dementia. So when I, you know, when I was getting tested, I didn't even know to start with I was being tested for dementia. I just thought my neurologist was doing follow-up brain scans, assuming it was going to be some sort of weird side effect from my brain surgery. And in actual fact, that was a a bit of a red alert to him because I'd been a healthcare professional, I'd been a nurse, uh, and most, he, he would say, most nurses are really bossy patients. And, you know, I know once if I was getting tested, having a blood test or a, a scan or any other test, I would have done my homework. I would have known what I was being tested yeah. for, but not to even twig that I was being tested initially for Alzheimer's type dementia. To him was a bit of a like, oh, gee, something is going on here. Um, so it is a really complicated thing. I mean, it, it really is. I think it's the fifth leading cause of death globally now. In Australia, wow. it's the second leading cause of death of men and women. It's now the leading cause of death of women, um, and it's the most feared disease of any disease now. It's taken over from cancer some years ago, and I believe mm. in the UK it's taken over as the most feared disease 
for people over 40, whereas here it's over 65. Mm. Um, yeah, that's uh, it's very interesting. You made that comment about being a healthcare professional yourself. And when you're I, I, something I was actually thinking about yesterday, that I might do a separate episode on this. When you're a healthcare professional yourself, then you're going through your own health challenges and the natural thing is to, I, I remember a friend of mine said, for a healthcare professional to go to the doctor and say, I have a problem and I've not been able to solve it, then you know it's outside of your depth, right? And I think other healthcare professionals, uh, you know, doctors and so forth, when they know you're a healthcare professional, they sometimes lean on you a little bit because they assume, because they think what they would do, they lean on you a little bit to say, in terms of the kind of communication about what you're going through, because they expect for you to have done some background research yes. before you're coming, you know, um, and and that moment where you're sitting there saying, no, I actually, I don't know, you tell me, <laughs> you know. It, yeah, so my doctors now, my general practitioner, my family doctor and my physician, um, who, you know, I had been a patient of theirs for uh, one for over 20 years. And so the, our relationship was more like the doctor-nurse relationship, even though I was a patient. And, you know, my kids, when they were young, used to say, oh, Dr. Barrett, could could you and mum talk in a language that I can understand? And, <laughs> yes. and, and he'd just torment them and say, well, you can always do medicine. There's more words in the medical dictionary than the <laughs> English dictionary. But, yeah. of course, they've been used to having dialogue with me as a past healthcare professional, yeah. understanding what they're talking about. And now I have to say, uh, just treat me like a normal patient. I've got no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I just yeah yeah it's complicated and it's um it's been interesting to watch how they've had to really change away from thinking now here's this woman who you know I was actually a really good diagnostic nurse as well and mm. you know I can't even remember what the bone in my arms are called yeah that shift must be interesting as 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 well and um comes I guess maybe with its own challenges because you're used to having dealt with healthcare professionals with a a sort of safety net of yes. at least I can look and yeah that's that's um very powerful there's one thing I wanted to go back to symptoms of because you'd mentioned symptoms of um just in general like symptoms of dementia if could you just comment on the common symptoms um that yeah that are of common symptoms of dementia because you mentioned that sometimes with uh, for the younger onset dementia patients, they might have already started to experience symptoms but may not realise, you know, what that is. Yes, so, I mean, if I think back to my own case, my first symptom, which I didn't equate to being dementia, but found out after diagnosis was actually... I don't know if this is the technical term, um, but it's basically an acquired dyslexia. And I was getting numbers back to front, colours back to front, uh, seeing words upside down, uh, getting quotes wrong at work, um, a whole range of... I hadn't had dyslexia as a child. I'd had near-perfect spelling and grammar and suddenly, you know, the people under me at work were saying, but that quote's wrong. Um, 
to me that was really confusing and I, I just made this ridiculous assumption, I guess, that these things were side effect of the brain surgery. Um, and so, I, you know, I have um, uh, lots of changes that I would never have equated to dementia years ago. So I have some visual depth perception changes that are not related to eyesight but are related to the dementia. I've got some um, uh, changes to my peripheral vision that aren't actually my eyesight, again. Um, uh, Agnes Houston, who's a woman in Scotland who was diagnosed with young onset dementia, she wrote a terrific little kind of booklet on all of the sensory changes that you uh, can experience with dementia. So a lot of... Um, members of DAI report having changes to their taste, to their smell. Mm -hmm. um, they're not anything I would have ever thought were dementia. So there's just a lot of other disabilities that we don't understand. So it's not just mm -hmm. memory loss. It's not just, um, you know, cognitive changes, confusion or, you know, getting lost, those types of things, which you kind of equate to dementia more quickly. Um, there's a mm -hmm. whole list of other things. Wow. And um, is there a difference in how younger onset dementia is diagnosed compared to later onset dementia? I would expect, uh, I couldn't talk about that from a clinical mm. point of view, really. I, I, I don't, I'm not a diagnostician. Um, mm -hmm. But from what I've seen, I think that's because uh, it's less common with younger people. Um, and I don't know, maybe there's ageism and stigma kicks in when you're older. So it's almost expected that you'll get dementia as you get older. Um, mm. You know, I know lots of older people who've just been told by their doctor they've got Alzheimer's. No testing done at all other than the mini mental test. Um, no scanning, nothing else. And they just accept it. Um, but certainly most people I know with young onset dementia go through really rigorous testing with MRIs and, and SPECT scans and uh, PET scans and, you know, significant amount of neuropsych testing um, and usually over a number of years. So, you know, do you get some of our DAI members have taken up to seven years to actually get their diagnosis. And, you know, I'm not sure that that's a good thing. I think that that's partly to do with a lack of education of healthcare professionals about younger people getting dementia as well. And that's no disrespect to doctors um, or nurses. Mm. But, you know, you know, I was talking to my neurophysio recently and, I mean, patients and a person with dementia would never call themselves a patient unless they're mm. at their doctor's room or they're in hospital. Other than that, they're just a person living with dementia with a name. Um, but... Uh, we were saying that, you know, patients generally expect their doctors and healthcare professionals to know everything, but how can they? Because that's why we have specialist doctors, you know. You wouldn't go to your general practitioner for shoulder surgery. You'd go to a shoulder surgery specialist. And, uh, you know, I think that as, uh, it, you know, the public needs to be a bit kinder to doctors, really, because it's a massive job and the body is an incredible... Um, piece of equipment, really that's what it is, uh, with a lot of moving parts uh, and a lot that we don't even understand yet. <laughs> exactly. And and um, 
you've reminded me that I should be saying a patient, you see, I said it again, a person living with dementia, not a patient and get, and that's definitely my healthcare professional hat on where everybody's a patient, right? You just say, oh, you try to be a patient, but actually it's a person or somebody living with dementia. I think that's an important learning point for me that I want to um, implement. Then the one other thing I just wanted to <clears throat> comment on was, um, the stigma of older age and that sort of brush away statements of oh yeah yeah it's dementia or you're getting old so you know losing memory or that that's you know that's fine and it, it's something that um a few years back with one of my colleagues uh former colleagues uh Mine Olu Dr Mine Olu um at UCL uh we did a public engagement event around um how older people um manage their medicines because we're pharmacists and we're very interested in medicines all the time and um it the idea of the workshop was to present things that we were working on research-wise but then to get feedback and also in a wide have a wider conversation about perception of older people in health and everything and one of one of the really interesting conversations not about medicines was about the the sort of this the way older people are presented in the media and even just like in drawings and things like that you know sometimes with a cane hunchback and things like that and how that perception already gives um and you know the 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 other aspects as well is like maybe in cartoons or something where an older person is is known to be forgetful and that's a, a joking point um and it was it was how those those um perceptions uh, and those things, those images that are being portrayed, trickles down to just general society's perception of older people. So therefore, when an older person might be saying, oh, I think this is what I'm going through or something's wrong, it's dismissed as any one of these um, conditions that people assume are for older age without proper due diligence being, you know, taking into account for the diagnosis and things like that. So was, I was sort of... Uh, it saddened me to kind of hear you say that as well, because it just shows that unfortunately there's just no progress in areas. There are different areas that I'm just seeing there's pockets of lack of progress. Yeah, um, a big lack of progress, I think. And mm, I think my youngest son, who was 16 when I was diagnosed with dementia, and, and I'd been through a lot of other health, uh, critical health things over a few years. So the kids were kind of used to uh, talking about this stuff and, so we sat them down to tell them that I had young onset dementia and, I mean, immediately my younger son, he kind of laughed but not in a funny way. He said, but mum, yeah. isn't that a funny, weird old person's disease? Mm-hmm. And that kind of says in one sentence what you think of old people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, a lot of my elderly friends say people ignore them even at the counter in a shop. Wow. So- ageism out there yeah i think there's some ageism amongst healthcare professionals by not having that due diligence when they treat older people as well yeah i agree i agree um i'd like to move on to talking about your experience uh living with dementia and i understand that you at some point were studying for a phd for your phd but that you've currently withdrawn so i wanted to just Kind of go into that, like, why did you withdraw? Actually, maybe first start off with what your PhD was about and then why did you um, withdraw? Okay, so so I was studying a double, uh, I was a late stage tertiary student, having been a nurse in the hospital train system. 
And so I was studying a Bachelor of Psychology and a Bachelor of Arts when I was diagnosed with dementia. Um, and that, that was actually um, the perfect time for me in my life to be at university because they, university really taught me to see my symptoms as disabilities, sent me to their disability support team uh, and, and set me up with all this disability support. So that enabled me um, to much more confidently finish my two degrees and then I did a master's. I kind of, I always wanted to do a PhD. I dipped my toe back in the water in 2014 and did a master's of science in dementia care. And that went reasonably well, so I applied for a PhD and I was doing it in, uh, it, it kind of evolved a bit. It ended up being about dementia and disability and economic stigma. Um, but really my symptoms have advanced, I think, too much. And I was just finding just simple stuff like referencing even I can't use the online referencing tool anymore without having to sit down and do five, you know, YouTube videos on how to do it. And then by the time I've done that, I've forgotten how to do it again. Um, so okay. the technical stuff about, you know, you can't just, it's not just like writing a book. Um, you, you know, you have it has to have the academic rigour of um, a PhD. And I, I, I could have struggled on, um, but I just felt like, it was too hard at the moment. So, um, yeah, it's probably, you know, one of, one of the dreams that, that I will always feel sad about um, was something to do since I was at school. Um, but I just feel like there's too much, too many other things to do with my life than just focus on one or two little research kind of pockets in a PhD. So, yeah. No, I can understand that. And, and it sounds as though um, there's there also in your in your journey, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds as if in your journey, there seems to be, this is the theme that I'm also getting in what you've said so far. There seems to be this theme of having to um, self-reflect, self-assess and understand where you're at with your symptoms and the progression of, uh, of dementia and then evaluate if you can, Go, you know what's what to do um whilst also looking after yourself even in that space as well it's sort of a lot of self-reflection that, that's what I'm sort of getting um yeah. from what you're saying and I, evaluation when I was first diagnosed it really wasn't anything for me and I was advised uh to I did a living with memory loss course and it wasn't my doctor that gave this advice um, you know doctors are generally diagnosticians and they manage disease if you need you know they manage your condition but if you need uh, you know community support of some sort or other services then service providers provide that support and, and so I did a living with memory loss course my husband did it with me and it was the most horrific thing we'd ever done or been to and the advice for me really was um, we got some information about what dementia was and the different types of dementias and then we spent a lot of time being told about how to get my end of life affairs in order, um, wills and advanced care directive, all those types of things. Uh, it was recommended that I visit aged care facilities and start even going to an aged care daycare unit a day a month to get used to it. Now, bear in mind, wow. I'll 49 years old 
Yeah. And th this was a group of people all with young onset dementia, all being given. Now, this advice, it's, you know, the term I trademarked a term called prescribed disengagement. And mm. that's basically what people do. They tell you to give up living your life. And there is this 20th century view of dementia still uh, out there amongst uh, service providers, amongst some healthcare professionals who have been, and certainly the general population, they've been used to seeing people with much more advanced dementia who there wasn't the diagnostics for diagnosing, say, someone with young onset dementia that there is now. Like 30 years ago, I probably would have been that uh, mum in the corner at parties doing strange things. But, I, you know, I just would have been looked after and nobody would have thought twice about it. But now we've got such good diagnostics um, that young onset dementia is more easily diagnosed and, and more accurately diagnosed. Um, uh, I've forgotten what I was going to say. It's okay. Um, I think that term prescribed disengagement yes. is fair because as uh, obviously the listeners can't see my face but when you said the daycare once a month I was like what <laughs> you know kind of one it's, it's what too so so the, the, you uh, know, the simple term is to uh, give up your pre-diagnosis life generally um, and for older people, that, that could mean volunteering, it could mean the bowls club, it could mean a whole range of just general, you know, fun life activities. But give up your life as you knew it, uh, get your end-of-life affairs in order and get acquainted with aged care. That's basically what happened to me. We have new members joining Dementia Alliance International 12 years later and it's still happening to them. And, you know, people say to me, you know, you, why do you keep advocating? And I go, because to be really honest, almost nothing has changed in 12 years. And so this 20th century view of late stage advanced symptoms of dementia really needs to change. We really need to empower people and give them support to live with dementia, not just die from it. Yeah. Like and, and it's still yeah. very passionately about that um yeah no i i um it i can only imagine just you know having that conversation and getting your diagnosis and then being told you've got to prepare for for the end and it's like you even knowing in yourself okay yes you might have had this diagnosis but you still know you have life in you you still have things to contribute um and what happens when you get given that prescription of of uh, disengagement is that you lose hope for your future. You right. do think you're going to go from diagnosis to end stage quickly. You actually mm. kind of think it's going to happen quicker than the doctor said it'll happen. Because of this prescription of disengagement, your family loses hope. My husband was told he would soon have to give up work to look after me. So he, we all lost hope for a future as a family. I started to give up. He started to take over, which actually disabled me further. And it took us a year or so to really juggle that, hey, don't do it for me. Let me keep doing it for myself for as long as possible. And, you know, I was very good at high-level maths 
and English. And, and I, I had been the person that managed the finances in the family. And, I, you know, not too soon into the diagnosis, in fact, I had to stop managing our money. So, you know, I don't do the banking and that sort of thing. But I was still doing the online bookkeeping for my husband's mm -hmm. business, which I'd done forever and he didn't know how to do it, a program called MyOb, similar to QuickBooks. And he kept saying to me, you know, I, 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 do you want me to take it over for you? And I kept thinking, if I keep pushing my brain, it'll it'll be good for me. And and you know, I'm not making too many mistakes. Mm -hmm. I didn't think I was. But and then one year he took all the books into the accountant, and I'd stopped going to the accountant because I don't really understand what they're talking about anymore, which is hard to admit, but it, it mm -hmm. is so you know, I didn't used to admit stuff like that, but you know, I wear glasses so I can see, so what's the difference? And and <laughs> come home and he had to say, look, Kate, um, I'm not sure how to say this, but the accountants have said to me that we really, we don't know how to say it to Kate, we really think it's time she stops doing the online bookkeeping system because I had made so many mistakes. And it was a lot of it's the fact that I see six and nine back to front and, um, you know, I just, I, I, it took me a long time to really recover from that emotionally. Um, and that's, mm -hmm. that, you know, something I wasn't told about when I was diagnosed with dementia was my loss and grief that I would feel from my own diagnosis. Most of the literature talks about the family's loss or, you know, a person's dying and they're losing capacity and it's such a focus on our deficits and their loss but almost not even an acknowledgement that every time I can't do something it might upset me or you know I might have plateaued in my functioning for a while and then it drops again and there's some new things I can no longer do that's massively, you know, distressing. Of course, of course, of course. And um, I think as you've been told, as we've been having this discussion, one of the things that I I, I also feel is, um, I'm not sure if, if you sort of know this, but one of the challenges being uh, an academic or a scientist is if you have a passion for something, research you want to find something out you want to investigate something if that topic is not of interest in terms of national government international funding you're not going to get funded exactly. to do anything and i think that um money unfortunately or fortunately however you want to look at it money is uh what shapes movement especially when it comes to research and i i often and then also you've got that then you've also got communication challenges where now, I think for sort of my generation of academics, we try to think a little bit more in a multidisciplinary fashion, but still multidisciplinary research is not uh, is not as easy as it sounds to bring together. Right. And um, if you're if in a scenario, especially with dementia, where you've got the early uh, sorry, young onset dementia, later onset dementia, if let's say there were some clinicians um, healthcare professionals in a hospital or even primary care setting who had identified, oh, this is interesting. But then if they themselves don't have a culture of writing publications or liaising or informing people, then you have that gap of um, potential further investigation. 
right? Yes. And then on top of all of that, if um, you have an academic or a scientist who's like, oh, or even it doesn't even have to be if somebody who, for example, when you talk about the kind of like the support, you know, this the what support does the individual need and understanding and coping with their recent diagnosis, what's their journey? If there's nobody researching and investigating that, the person living that experience ends up becoming the researcher themselves. Um, and, and I think, I mean, you know, I, I think I, I mentioned it to you previously, but um, the whole reason for doing this dementia series is because my grandmother is a person living with dementia and my mom is uh, her, her primary carer. And, uh, she's the next interview actually after yours and what I've witnessed from her um, and her experience has my mum's my experience sorry yeah. has been having to figure things out yeah. <laughs> by watching and, and just also applying logic like my mum my is, is uh, not a healthcare professional she's a lawyer in background and having to especially with my grandmother not understanding fully what she she understands something is different like she makes comments of oh this and she would always say things like oh this old age you know and it's like mm, is it you know you know those sort of things and and it's you know now with with COVID and we're going to talk about COVID at some point but now with COVID I know that a lot of research is in fact a lot of research already is going to be about pandemic infection and in a way it's going to shift a lot of money that could be poured into other things now every now if I, I feel if you want to get some funding you might have to say something and COVID not yes. just I'm not taking away the yeah I'm not taking away the importance of COVID but I'm just saying that you know when we look at sort of these health inequalities the these these challenges that people are facing it's unfortunately because somebody when decisions were being made about funding and money somebody in the room had their own objective <laughs> and priorities I don't know if I'm, this is too political to say, but I'm saying it. Um, yeah, somebody, you know, the people, what was deemed as being a hot topic yes. uh, was based on whoever was in the room yes. saying that my topic is a hot topic, you know. Yes. Um, and and it saddens me because it just saddens me because every, as you said even earlier, that, you know, the body is so complex. There's so much going on, right? And yeah. and this is you know this is why we need research. We need communication with people living with whatever condition and diseases, so that you can feed back to uh, scientists such as myself who have this interest. And then they can say, oh, why don't we write this project and get funding, right? Yeah. Because you need the money to do the work, and it's m money for like five years, three years, you know, that longevity yes, yes. Um, in different sectors. But I don't know. I feel like I've, I've just had a rant. <laughs> I don't know. I um, mean, a number of years ago in Australia, we tried to get the the various uh, not for profits that that work with um, people with different neurological conditions like dementia, MS, Parkinson's, and so on. And um, even though people with those other health conditions like MS and Parkinson's um, and motor neurone disease, they often also have a dementia component to their condition. Um, those organisations didn't want to work with Alzheimer's Australia because of the stigma of dementia. dementia. But in the last couple of, pre-COVID, in the last couple of years, they've been making complaints that they can't get funding. And, all, you know, dementia's getting all the funding now. And so we've been saying, well, put dementia into your applications and you'll get funding. 
And of course, now COVID's taking over from everything. So, um, yeah. 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 No, COVID. Research is a funny thing or not. It, it, it is. It really is. Um, uh, moving on from that, I want to talk about your books because I am going to be, I want to put links. So you've written two books. The first, I, I think the first one, and correct me if I'm wrong, was What the Hell Happened to My Brain, Living yeah. Beyond Dementia. Yeah. And then the second one, Diagnosed with Dementia, I'm sorry, Diagnosed with Alzheimer's or Another Dementia. Um, and I'm going to put links, the, they're available, both books are available on Amazon. I'm going to put links um, in the so episode description. The second, and, the second book's available yeah. through Apple. Uh, Apple. Oh, Apple. Amazon, the first oh. one's definitely available through Amazon. Okay, and the second one is Apple Books. Yeah. So I'll, I'll find them and I'll put them links. But I just wanted to find out your journey as I'm, I'm hoping to write a book at some point in my life. Um, so this is a conversation twofold. Just your journey of writing a book, that feeling of actually putting pen to paper, your experiences. And, and what was that like for you um, as a person living with dementia, having to, not having to, what, what was that process of writing about your experiences? Did you get some form of release from it? And yeah, just your whole journey with the book writing. Okay, so the book writing process is probably a bit different to, uh, I need to go backwards a little bit. I had used over my life, uh, I, I was a, a big writer. I loved writing and reading. Um, used to read about six books a week and uh, had always used journaling as therapy. If I was going through a, you know, diet, you know, when I was a kid, I would have called it my diary. Um <laughs> And, you know, if I was going through a difficult time in my life, I would write kind of as therapy to get it. Just the expression of writing um, is really healing and very powerful. And when my uh, first life partner um, took his life, I was 27. And really, if I hadn't taken to journaling, um, I, I'm not sure how I would have survived that experience. It was, a, you know, suicide grief is really, really tough. Um, and then, uh, you know, when I was first diagnosed with dementia, I really cried almost nonstop for weeks. And um, then I found some excerpts um, on good old Dr. Google from Richard Taylor, who was a psychologist in the States who had been diagnosed with young onset dementia. And, uh, you know, I, I read these excerpts and it was like reading my own story. And, you know, he was a high-functioning um, individual in healthcare. He cried for weeks when he was diagnosed and then he decided to uh, manage himself like his clients. And he used to look after... Uh, kids from disadvantaged families, you know, um, with, uh, anyway, young kids. Uh, and he used to get them to journal. And then I went, well, that's stupid. Why don't I do that? So I started a private blog and it, I, I still write in it every now and then. And I called it What the Hell Happened to My Brain because, you know, really I, I did wonder what the hell happened to my brain because I, I was high-functioning and I had a near-photographic memory. So... You know, if I'd read out your bank card, visa card, I would have remembered the number. And, you know, the kids used to talk about me being like the walking telephone book. They'd just say, what's the phone number for such and such? And I'd, I would reel it off. Um, and, you know, when I suddenly couldn't remember stuff like that, mm -hmm. uh, it was pretty concerning, of course, and that was one of the markers for me. And, you know, that's in the diagnostic process. If you're 
having trouble doing something you've always done. So if an accountant suddenly can't do accounting, that is a huge sign that it might be dementia. Um, whereas if you were never good at maths and you're still not good at maths, that's not going to make any difference to whether you've got dementia or not. Um, but to me, so I started writing and, and then I, I, I started a public blog. Um, I didn't call it what the hell happened to my brain. Um, whatever my website's called now, it's still called that. Um, and uh, I was actually um, approached by Jessica Kingsley Publishers and I thought about writing a book. And I had, you know, like you said, you've always wanted to write a book and I'd wanted to write a book since I was a kid and I'd tried to write a book and but I hadn't done anything with it, hadn't been brave enough to. Um, and so then I thought, oh, yeah, okay, I'll write the book about my experiences of dementia and I didn't even feel able to do it like in a chronological order. And so I, I chose topics and some chapters are really, really short and they were really just what I had to say on topics about dementia. But, you know, I, I started writing in a way and blogging and then speaking because um, fairly early on in the disease I started going to uh, meetings and conferences about dementia really to learn about it because, mm. you know, in all my years nursing, I didn't learn anything really about dementia, to be honest. Um, an hour of lectures on dementia is not enough. Um, the brain is a very complex piece of equipment in our body. Uh, and so I started going to conferences and then I realised that I'd go to conferences and I'd listen to people without dementia telling me how I felt and what was best for me. Yeah. Um, I know uh, there's a bit of Scottish in my blood and I'm a bit feisty and I went, <laughs> I don't know, you don't know what's best for me and you don't actually know yeah. how I feel. Exactly. How presumptive is that? And so, you know, one of yeah. the, you know, people without dementia often refer to people with dementia as sufferers of dementia. Well, actually, mm. not sufferers. We're people living with it. Sometimes yeah. we suffer, but I suffer more from my arthritis than I do from dementia. Right. And so, right. You know, and, and people with cancer hate being called sufferers or victims. Um, and, you know, uh, anyway, so I started writing this book and, and, and had I not been, oh, I've got confused, sorry, I have to go backwards because when I started, mm -hmm. it took, I, I opened up my blog, it was just a free website, and then it took me three months to actually work out how to post a blog. Um, right. It's not that hard, but it took me ages and lots of YouTube watching. And then I thought, okay, to get the habit of blogging and to try and embed that new learning, I'll write a blog every single day for a year, which is quite wow. a And then without thinking that when you join a, a website provider, so WordPress is the provider that I use, and they'll do things like, oh, we've got a competition for our WordPress users. Why don't you uh, write a special series for a whole year? So I signed up to this kind of WordPress thing and not without realising I committed myself to two blogs a day for a year. Um, and then I realised at the end of it, if you commit to writing even 200 words a day for a year, you so if you choose, if you want to write about your life, just start writing and don't stop. Just do 200 words a day and you'll get there. 
Um, and so that habit of writing and then uh, it's scary getting published and academic publishing is different because you might get critique, yeah. but it's very different to bearing your soul or, say, writing a thriller that's an absolute, you know, book that nobody wants to ever read and they give you horrible reviews about and so your life on the line but I don't think I'd have been brave enough to publish a book about it had I not already had public blogging and you know I watch new bloggers so friends of mine might start blogging and you know the online space is is a bit unpleasant and I I watch happened to me and I watch other bloggers at about the three to six month mark if they're really prolific bloggers they start getting attacked by people wow it's like you know so what if my grammar's not so good anymore or so what if you disagree with me it's just my opinion and my experience but it can be ugly and so I used to put all of the ugly comments up on my blog and then I didn't have to do anything. I'd just, and I'd say, thanks very much for your thought. And yeah. I kind of learnt that from a, a person that was my kind of guru in self-help after David took his life, um, the late Wayne Dyer. Dwyer? Dyer. Yeah. You know who I mean, a motivational speaker. Yes, yes, doing, yeah, doing Dyer. Did he, did he take his life? No, no, he didn't take his life. My partner, Oh, sorry, your friend. Oh, sorry, sorry, yeah. yes. <laughs> of natural causes in the last I don't know couple yeah. of years. but yeah. I heard him at a conference at a he was in Adelaide at a motivational speaking event oh, wow. uh, he stood up and I, I actually had the pleasure of meeting him afterwards but um, he stood up and he talked about um, writing because he'd written a lot of books and what he used to do this is going back a long time pre-emails and pre the internet he would get all these letters from people handwritten letters and some would be I love your books and some would be I hate your books, so he used to photocopy all of the letters and he used to reply to every single person apparently and he'd send, so if you'd written him a letter of how much you liked his book, he'd send you a letter, said thank you very much and this is a letter of what somebody else thought of my book and it'd be what hated <laughs> about his book and vice versa. So, so what happened, I started just accepting mean blog comments and then mm-hmm. other blog, uh, other comment people commenting would kind of go on the attack for I don't have to do anything. And as soon, as soon sooner, it actually usually happened later, the, the bullies would disappear. But, yeah, I don't know, you know, who would want to be mean? Um, but lots of people want to be mean. So, so the blogging kind of went from that to the book and then uh, I was approached by um, a publisher here in Australia to the second book is very much, uh, it's what I wanted when I got mm. diagnosed. I didn't know I needed it, but it's what I wanted. Um, I don't want single help sheets, fact sheets, that I yeah. can't manage and I can't find and I lose. So I just threw them in the bin. I wanted a book that told me about dementia, what they were, mm-hmm. in a language that I could understand, the kind of just an mm-hmm. overview of the diagnostic process, um, and then what were all the resources and services that you might need, even if you don't need them now. And uh, the publishing house here wanted, they were doing a series of health books on mm-hmm. chronic conditions. So they'd done cancer and, and MS and Parkinson's and they decided to do dementia. So we, uh, they asked me to find a, a medically trained writer. I had an academic psychologist that 
co-authored the book with me, so she did the more nice. technical writing. And and we did about 18 months of interviews and focus groups to try and get stories. Wow. You know, we wanted stories from the people from the LGBTIQ a plus community and there's so many yes. in that now um yes. you know friends of mine in that community almost like saying can can you stop saying that we're just people too um, yeah which is true and you know I, I interviewed uh general practitioners who who have a large cohort of patients and like we interviewed a psychiatrist who half of his patient cohort are people with dementia and he's a bit scared he's got the genetic type of alzheimer's so it was just wow. really interesting and we you know I interviewed a young woman who's culturally she should be home looking after her I can't remember if it was her mother or father but she was from Iran and she now lives in Australia and she's got a husband and a career and children and you know the guilt and all of that of not being back home doing what her culture says she should be doing so we tried really hard to capture lots of lots of stories and we have been asked to rewrite it for an international audience so rather than referring just to uh, dementia australia services we mm. will eventually get around to it and put it together but it's really what i wanted from diagnosis mm. to the end and we put in about writing your will and getting your advanced care directive done and all, all those types of topics Mm. I was actually going to ask you if you if you were um, going to write another book, but I I, I can just say that I think having um, that book uh, for an international audience would be greatly appreciated, um, especially for carers um, who as, as well for you know for everyone. It's, it sounds like it's an informative book that a person living with dementia or recently diagnosed can can benefit from, as well as anybody on the periphery, as it were. Yes. Um, I think it would be a really useful book now, but where it says, you know, uh, contact Dementia Australia or whoever, just go to your your own country organisation. You yeah. just, you know, exactly. To but I, I am hoping to uh, write at least one more book. Um, Amazing. Well, do keep keep me informed so I can share with the audience because you've given me. I now know I need to start writing a blog a day. Yes, and uh, even private. Yeah, yeah, a blog a day. I don't know if I would be brave enough to uh, let it be open to the public, but I definitely will start off writing privately <laughs> and then see how I get on. Yeah, and just write. So one of the tips I was given uh, was don't edit it, just write. Oh. Just let it, because my I was such a perfectionist with writing, yes. spelling and grammar initially I would spend four days correcting something and go don't do that just if I don't just know what right. writing is it a fiction book or a your life story well, but it, yeah life story that's right so just get okay. that out and then you fix it up all grammar and stuff later at the end oh thank you so much for that I'm, I'm, I feel like you're you're mentoring me in this conversation <laughs> that's fine I love it the editing bit love- stops the creative stuff so get the way of writing. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. Um, and I want to move on to, we've been talking a little bit about Dementia Alliance International. Um, 
which you are the chair, the CEO and the co-founder. It is an amazing organization and we're uh, in for the month of, well, throughout this Dementia series, we're fundraising for uh, Dementia Alliance International. So if you could just tell us about this uh, amazing organization, Dementia Alliance International. Well, it's an interesting organization. It was uh, co-founded by eight people with a diagnosis of dementia, mostly with young onset dementia, but a couple of older people. Um, and I think one of our co-founders was in her early 40s when she was diagnosed. We were from three different countries. We now have members in I think 49 countries now. Uh, why did we start it? We, uh, I guess it started partly because of one of the co-founders, um, Richard Taylor, the late Richard Taylor. He mm -hmm. done a lot of work with Alzheimer's Disease International over a number of years and he'd always wanted an international kind of support and advocacy group um, of people with dementia and um, he, you know it's funding is the biggest issue that we face yeah. still um, and you know I, I'd been connected with him on email and through our respective websites and, and then we I had the great pleasure of meeting him and about 30 other people with dementia in uh, London in 2012 at the Alzheimer's Disease International Conference and um, get a people a group of people with dementia together with the noisiest, loudest uh, bunch you'll get. And we decided that we would actively work towards setting up an international organisation. So there, there had been an international group called DASNI. I can't remember what DASNI stands for. Um, and that was more like a website and, but not really active services. What, what we did on the 1st of January, and like we launched on the 1st of January 2014, and that's kind of a cute, funny story on its own. Um, one of our founders in America was setting up the website. He didn't even realise he'd made it live on the 1st of, of January. So then he emailed us all and went, Holy moly, it's live. <laughs> we're going to go live today because I don't know how to shut it down. So we kind of, you know, like we weren't, he'd never set up a website. I'd never set up a website and went until I first did it. Um, so we set it up and we started with support groups using Zoom. So we've been using Zoom, uh, in fact, since 2013. Um, mm. People mentioned have been using it for a long time. COVID's taught the rest of the world how to use it. <laughs> Um, yeah. platforms like Teams, of course. Um, but so we started having weekly support groups. So they were initially we um, had a volunteer. She'd been volunteering with Richard for a long time um, and she continued volunteering with us for a year or so. So she would co-host some of the support groups. But then as our membership grew and it did grow pretty quickly, um, you know, we have support groups in different time zones around the world now. And, you know, when the coronavirus um, reared its uh, head, we had to set up quite a few more because people needed extra support. We have a monthly virtual cafe, and we have done since we first started. We oh, nice. have a monthly educational webinar with really eminent speakers, which we've done almost monthly since we first started. So yesterday um, morning at 6.30 in the morning for me, we had... Um, 
Professor Stephen Zabat from the uh, USA speaking. Um, the month before, we had a professor talking about gait retraining in dementia, uh, mm. help people who were, you know, having falls and so on. So we had yeah. really good speakers at our webinars. Um, uh, what else do we do? So we've got a really active uh, social media kind of space. Um, I only found out a few days ago we didn't just win the Top 20 Dementia YouTube Channel Award in 2018. We also got there in 2019 and 2020. Nice. Oh, right. that's because that's on my list of questions to ask you about. <laughs> yeah, well, one of our new board members say she was having a look at the website and she said, oh, I'm not sure if you realise you were, we also won the award two more years. Um, amazing. Yeah, so that is amazing. And, uh, you know, I think that so we do advocacy as well and we've taken that to the global international space. Um, and that started in 2015 when I was invited by the WHO to give a keynote presentation at the first ministerial conference on dementia. And that was pretty game changing for us. It, it you know, eight minutes um, gave us a bit of a global voice. And the three um, actions that I asked for did make it into the director's uh, final call for action at the end of that two day event. Um, and, you know, we, last year we held a side event at the convention on, of state parties on the CRPD in New York, and that was the first time ever that a side mm -hmm. event had represented dementia as a disability. Mm -hmm. So there'd never been a side event just about wow. dementia. Um, it had been represented there, but not a whole side event for dementia and run by an organization of people with dementia and we uh, you know we uh, i think the side event was called uh, the leading cause of disability um and so that's on the un's website and also on dai's um web page mm -hmm. so we're, we're really committed to that global advocacy space to make sure that dementia is not just seen as a disability or written up on the who website but that it's managed as a disability. So, you know, and what I and I've been saying this for nearly 12 years, if I'd had a stroke when I was 49 years old or I'd been in a major road accident and had a serious brain injury, I would have been given rehabilitation and supported back to whatever life I was capable of. And if I was capable with rehabilitation of going back to working as a nurse, that's what would have happened. And yet with dementia, I was told to go home and get ready to die. Now, yeah. that's not good enough. You yeah, know, don't not. tell children with disabilities not to go to school. We yeah. find ways to support their disabilities, even those with really severe disabilities. So why are we telling people at any age with dementia to basically give up? And we really need society to just stop being scared of dementia. It's not the worst disease you can get. Um, and to treat people with the same love and kindness and compassion that they do now if they've got cancer. So, you know, one of our icons in Australia, an ambassador for Dementia Australia, she's been, you know, famously known for many, many things, but one of them is a quote that, got bandied around during World Alzheimer's Month a few years ago and it was like, when you get cancer, your friends and family rally around you 
when you get dementia, everyone disappears. Mm. And so we need, you know, it, it, this is when we need our family and friends more than ever before. Um, yeah. You know, we need people to understand and to be supportive. And if we can see the symptoms as disabilities that may not be a cure, may not, it may not even slow the prog pro progression, but if it does support us to live independently for longer, that's mm. got to be a good thing. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And and that sort of just, again, the wall of silence, everybody disappearing, um, even in cases where family also disappears. Uh, and it's it's just, I don't know, it can be very I'm getting, like, lonely as well, you know, because that's the time where you expect those friendships, those connections uh that i don't want to say the time you've put in with people and it's like what you're owed <laughs> but it's always no I, that, that it is yeah you know that yeah i mean I, i'm lucky i've got a handful of really close uh um, nice. nursing mates and uh, you know like my very first nursing girlfriend um and and you know but my beyond my husband and children generally i have very little family connection in let alone support and that's mm -hmm. a really common story and you know the numbers of people with dementia and dementia alliance international who have been divorced because their partner can't cope with dementia and um, that's pretty common actually and you know that's the time you need your partner yeah but you know it's tough and yeah. uh, you know the isolation and the loneliness and the stigma and the discrimination is it's it's still very much the daily experience of people with dementia at any age, um, and so you know when COVID entered our world, yeah. uh, everyone was fearful of COVID. But then people would, and I, you know I've been quite vocal about it. Like what changed for me? Nothing. Yeah, yeah, actually nothing. Yeah, just except the rest of the world now understands distancing, stigma, isolation. And discrimination and you know people with COVID who've recovered from it have told me that the stigma and discrimination from having had it is really high and the fear of it being you know are you sure you're over it you know yeah I'm not going to catch it um so yeah. you know I think that let's hope that after this pandemic is over that the lived experience that almost yes. every human being on the planet now has of stigma isolation and physical and social distancing stays mm -hmm. with them so that they work towards improving the experience for people with dementia. Amazing and and do you feel that that um, is probably the main has may have been the main challenge for people in this time with COVID that further isolation or is it sort of as you said at, on top of what you've said of well, this is maybe something that they've been experiencing, but do you think there have been any other challenges that, uh, or any challenges? Yeah, some of, some of the other challenges for people with dementia, um, I think that many have reported that due to being uh, isolated at home, they feel that their symptoms have got a lot worse. Wow. And, uh, people in nursing homes, the... Uh, we've got members of DAI in nursing homes and, and I've got, you know, uh, people I know living in nursing homes or their family or 
uh, friends in nursing homes and they have talked about seeing a, a rapid progression of symptoms of people living in nursing homes uh, and I think it's been a particularly difficult experience for everyone but it's mm -hmm. definitely been it's worsened that feeling mm -hmm. of isolation for people with dementia. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and just going back to um, Dementia Alliance International so you mentioned that the organization is run by people who have been diagnosed with dementia. So what is that uh, What is that like? And have there been any challenges and how do you manage that? And, and when I say challenges, I don't even, don't necessarily mean challenges of the individuals um, who are part of the, you know, the board. I mean, perception, outside perception of an organization that's run by people who are living with dementia. Uh, that's a very interesting question. I might have to be careful what I say here. <laughs> um, I do whiz. I'm glad you can't see my face. Um, <laughs> that's funny. Uh, I think that there is a perception that, uh, and I do wonder whether this has been reflected in how difficult we've found it to get really adequate fundraising. Um, I think there might be a perception out there that people with dementia couldn't possibly uh, run an organisation with good governance. Mm -hmm. uh, we do have uh, volunteers without dementia, one who is officially our finance officer, to try and improve that external governance. But also, you know, I think it's a good idea if you've got people with changing cognitive capacity to have somebody without dementia. We have a uh, certified practicing accountant as well who does all of our um, uh, um, reporting. Um, there are challenges within the organization as well. Uh, I One of the things that new members tells, tell us regularly when they join DAI is that it's the first organisation where they could be themselves or mm. Jerry Wiley, one of our past board members, you know, it was heartbreaking when his first support group, he said it was the first time he'd smiled in two years. Mm. And we have people saying that to us all the time. It's the first time I've laughed since my diagnosis. It's the first time I've felt accepted. It's the first, first time that I just feel like I can say what I want and you guys understand me. Um, and 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 now we're also having, we're, we're doing a, a daily series of uh, video podcasts and blogs from people with dementia about, you know, why they, um, what they liked about DAI when they came to it. And one of the first ones we did was an interview with um, Wally, one of our board members now, and his wife, Pat, and... You know, for her, uh, Wally, it, it's some time out for her because Wally's having fun with us. But you know, he, you know, he kind of said it was almost life saving for him as well. Um, but I think there's also, uh, like with any organisation, we've grown fairly quickly in our membership, so we've had to ramp up member services. We've promised ourselves not all of the founders are still alive two, two of them are no longer with us but one of our promises was that services would always be free for members 
Um, and so we're really, and membership is free, and we're really committed to that. We're also really committed to not having people without dementia as members because what happens, and this happens in families, um, often the person without dementia, the main care partner, does much more of the talking, much more of the planning, makes many more decisions than the person with dementia. And You know, I, I, I've been at, at uh, you know, workshops and forums where they've wanted to get the opinions of people with dementia and their families and I'll be sitting at a table and we'll be workshopping a topic and there might be four people with dementia and four family carers, care partners there and I'll be the only person with dementia really contributing to the feedback and um, I'll be in the coffee break or the lunch break and the people with dementia from my table will be talking to me just like I'm talking to you. And I thought, well, why don't you say something during yeah. the focus group or during the workshop? Oh, I can't be bothered. My partner just mm. nags me on the way home and says I'm too slow or I'm embarrassing. Or if I start getting my words wrong, they just talk over the top of me, so I might as well just shut up. And so that's part of that, you know, that's part of that prescribed disengagement. They're not really yeah. they're not doing it out of bad intentions. They were told care partners are told to take over yeah. so they do they're just doing what they yeah. were told right up front and and so i i think that they unintentionally disable people with dementia mm -hmm. and dementia take on that learned helplessness thing like kids can take that on and people with disabilities can if you keep doing for them why would mm -hmm. they bother to do it for themselves for themselves yeah so, so we need to really I say to people, treat us tougher. Don't be softer mm. with us. Make us get up and shower ourselves or, mm -hmm. you know, do the cooking even if we need help. Get us involved. Um, mm -hmm. I was speaking at an event, it was probably during World Alzheimer's Month a few years ago in Canberra, and uh, this man with dementia was going to be speaking as well and he decided he wouldn't and his wife got up and spoke and she said, oh, you know, I can't remember their names, so-and-so. Yeah, he actually can cook because he was a trained cook, but uh, I just do it for him because he can't be bothered. And I said, you need to make him be bothered. Don't do it for yeah. him. Like very much, so, well, it will be quicker for me if I do it. But it actually, the less you do something, the less you want to do it, then the less mm -hmm. capable you are of doing it. Um, you kind of lose your mojo, even if you don't yeah. lose the ability you lose the motivation to do stuff if somebody keeps doing it for you yeah. so um, you know you have to think back to young kids if we did their shoelaces up for them forever they'd never be able to do up the shoelaces they would do it <laughs> yeah. yeah um and so you're going to have some video podcasts and blogs will that be on your youtube channel and um yeah, tell us about your YouTube channel so people can connect and and okay, and so uh, watch the website you guys. is kind of like the the normal not for profit type website. We yeah do, do have a reasonably regular blog goes out. We try for weekly. We don't always make weekly, um, and then we put up new information. We've got a human rights page and uh, a services page. A lot of drop down boxes with different things. Uh, we. During World Alzheimer's Month uh, in Australia, it's called Dementia Awareness Month, we will uh, have a daily blog 
and that will either be a written blog maybe by a new member about their story uh, or we will post a video podcast which will mm. be on our YouTube channel but we'll also put it onto our website. Um, nice. So if you go onto our YouTube channel, there's a lot of our past webinars are up there. Um, so mm. yesterday's and last month's not up there yet because we rely on a volunteer who's also my husband to do that and he has a full-time job. Um, we call him very lovingly the, the DAI backup brain or our bub. <laughs> so I, I nicknamed him my bub in about 2012 because uh, he hates being referred to as a carer. And right. when I asked him why, he said, well, I've cared for you forever. Like mm -hmm. I married you, I didn't just love you, I cared for you. So I don't mm -hmm. like being called a carer because that yeah. strips me of all my other roles. And so that yeah. then I thought about what else can I call him? So I just started, you know, jokingly calling him Bub. And he said, what, what are you calling me that for? And I said, well, because you're my backup brain. And then my <laughs> youngest son said, well, that actually, Mum, that makes perfect sense because mm -hmm. if you treat your brain like the hard drive on a computer, mm -hmm. you only go to the backup when the computer crashes. Yeah. So the only time my backup brain steps in is when I ask him to or if it's dangerous. And I yeah. think that's an excellent tip for every single person supporting somebody living with dementia. Unless yeah. very late stage and they can't shower or they can't feed themselves um, or they're unsafe to go out on the road, if they're still relatively uh, capable, then only do four when they ask you to right or if it's dangerous so i just think that's a good way to be because to yeah. do four when you're not asked for actually it annoys people mm -hmm. so it cause real tension in relationships um mm -hmm. and that's not the dementia that's having people taking over for you right yeah, yeah. that's kind of normal human behavior stuff yeah but dementia we get dementia gets blamed for everything <laughs> That's true. Um, I'm going to put details of your YouTube channel in the episode. This episode description is going to have everything. Well, it'll be on the website as well. <laughs> but I'm like, I've got to put this in. I'm going to put this in because I just there's just so much that I, I I'm gaining just from our conversation. I know other people will be, and I, I have been on the um, DAI website. Um, I've been on there quite a lot actually and it's, there's a lot of content informative information and um, just really good resources uh, for for people living with dementia and also those who are supporting them as well. Um, I hate to say it but we are towards the end of yeah. our discussion. I am sad because <laughs> I want to keep talking to you but also I appreciate it's late uh, for you now. Um, so we're at the sort of concluding section of this episode. You can tell I'm sad because I'm like, how else can I keep you on the phone? <laughs> um, and I was like, no, stay, stay on. Um, uh, okay, so I'm going to start our sort of concluding point by saying, asking you, sorry, what does dementia mean to you? So I would say now that dementia has given me a clarity about life and about people that I didn't have before, which is kind of ironical considering mm. 
there's an increasing fog in my brain. Uh, but I would on some days say it's my third greatest gift in my life. Um, the gifts far outweigh the negatives. So, uh, you know, I don't know how to explain that. It's another hour to talk about that. Um, but I, I think that, that to, you know, people with dementia say to me, and a lot of people without dementia say, if, if you met someone with dementia and you can only give them one piece of advice, what would it be? Mm. And I thought and thought and thought about that. And I would say that you should um, reclaim your pre-diagnosis life to overcome that prescribed disengagement. So if you are 68 years or 78 or 88 years old and you used to go bowling and you used to go to the Stitch and Beach Club or whatever, um, if you can't go on your own anymore but you still want to go, get somebody to take you. Keep living your life. Don't end up in some awful activities room in a daycare centre. Um, mm. Because if, if you didn't want to give up when you were first diagnosed, you'll want to give up then. And if, if you're working, you have a legal right to be supported with disability support, the same as you would have if you had a stroke or a car accident. So that's a long piece of one bit of advice. But, you know, to the general population of people without dementia, it's more than just a bit of awareness and about being friendly to us. It's about getting some, oh, I think I'll be really basic here, be kind to people, be generous and kind to people and show compassion, the same as you would if they had cancer. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, and at the start of our conversation, after you'd introduced yourself, um, you gave us a kind of the scientific or clinical definition of dementia. I wanted to kind of bring it back and say, how would you define dementia based on your experience? Um, is there, you know, I don't know if it, I, I, it's a question that I thought of, no, but I don't know if there is an answer. Well, I, I think that, yes, it's obviously a medical condition. Uh, yes, it is a terminal condition. It's also progressive and chronic. Uh, but I see it as a condition that causes acquired progressive disabilities uh, and that if we can see dementia through the lens of disabilities, then with appropriate disability assessment and support, we can live and maintain independence and a higher quality of life for longer. It's not a cure. Of course it's not a cure. But, but you know, doing that allows us to have a more positive experience of living with dementia not just going home and getting depressed because we're going to die from it. And, you know, I, I had, um, I, I did a presentation to a, a large group of um, religious leaders in Australia here a few years ago. And uh, one of the people in the front row in the Q&A session said to me, so how does it feel knowing you're going to die now that you've got dementia? And I was just slightly taken aback, but I've got a bit of a strange sense of humour. And I said to her, well, uh, 
how does it feel for you? Exactly. And, <laughs> and I said, well, there's one thing I can guarantee. It's about the only thing I can guarantee to all of you in this room is that we are all going to die. Dementia's been a gift because it's told me that it might happen earlier than you predicted. So, you know, yes, get your end-of-life affairs in order, but I was a bit of a death duelist, so I'd, I had chosen a plot when I was 18, my funeral plot, and uh, had my wills done when I, a will done when I was 18 as well, which is a bit unusual, I know. Um, I know. I, I've been odd for a long time, my children would say. <laughs> I'm sitting there going, mm-hmm, okay. <laughs> you saw me nodding. I was like, hmm. One of my funniest blogs on my website is on my personal website is the true story. If you look up lost the plot, you'll find out how I lost the plot. <laughs> I'm gonna put your website. I've got I've got your details for that. <laughs> Thank uh, you. This is a true story. So um but I no I don't even know what you're saying. <laughs> I lost the plot. Def- oh, no. <laughs> Gosh, that's an interesting segue. That's funny. That is funny. We were talking about, um, uh, what were we talking? You see, now I'm listening to find your experiences, but actually you answered it uh, perfectly. Uh, But now it's just, this is the last question. I'm really trying to keep you on. I'm just like, stay. What can I keep asking? No, but this is actually the last question, (laughs) Um, which is, if you could give us two, one to three, three doesn't have to be the middle, doesn't have to be three, but what would you, what would be your key take home messages? What do you want our listeners to, out of everything you've said, what is the, what are the key take home messages um, from uh, our discussion, I guess, from your perspective? I think really simply is that we need to see dementia as a disability and support people to live with it, not just go home and die from it, and to be more positive about it. Uh, I think one of the other messages would be to be kind to people with dementia, not patronising, but kind, Uh, and be kind to each other, you know, it's really important. And if you work in health, at the moment, being a healthcare worker would be the most stressful job in the world, I think. Uh, between COVID and, you know, the the media highlighting so often some of the less than good experiences in aged care, um, you know, I would hate to be an aged uh, an aged care worker now or a healthcare worker. Mm. It'd be really really difficult. So be kind to yourselves and be kind to each other. You know, that's that's the most important message ever. I think. I 100% agree. Um, Kate, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, Thank you so much for your insight, your words, your time. Um, And I already know you're going to be back on the podcast. (laughs) I've decided, by the way. I look forward to it. I'd love to. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us this week on the Monday Science Podcast. Make sure to visit our website. Uh, Details are in the episode description where you can subscribe to make sure that you never miss the show. Uh, So catch up with you next week. Bye.